Welcome to Ausfilm Creatives, a podcast about Australian creatives working behind the camera. My name is Peter Sylvester and I'm your host. Welcome back everyone. In this episode we have David Russell who is a storyboard artist and his uh, work has expanded over 80 feature films, uh, computer games and, and graphic art type of work. I mean there's too many movies to mention but uh, a few he's done is Star Wars Return of the Jedi, Batman, more recently Pirates of the Caribbean, Chronicles of Narnia. So yeah his work is uh, expanded and uh, most likely you would have seen some of his shots um, or a lot of his shots that he's created during the um, pre-production of a film. So yeah, hopefully uh, you get to learn a little bit about the man himself and about the process of storyboarding. Welcome to the show, uh, David Russell. I'm so excited to have you on board. I mean, I'm being a cinematographer, obviously being a visualist, it's, uh, it's uh, the most exciting things to talk to someone who also is you know in that same field of framing shots and creating images. How did you get into becoming, a, in, uh, I guess, an artist, but also specifically a storyboard artist? Well, first of all, thank you for including me in the show. I think what you're doing is very, very worthwhile and, and helpful to both the wider film industry, our local film industry, and also persons who are curious about the industry and, and not so aware of how movies and television shows are actually put together. As far as my own origins go, uh, you know, it's a little hard to trace back uh, when that creative fervor actually began, but I can sort of look back at perhaps around age 13 or 14 when drawing became more important to me than anything else, and also storytelling became very, very important. Some degree I credit my mother for her, her great enjoyment of reading fantasy and adventure stories to me from a very early age on. I think that probably set the stage in my mind for the genre that I would eventually be most suited for in the film industry. But having had, uh, you know, collegiate training at university in the arts, it was my first intention to go and work as a book and magazine illustrator. Uh, and I did do that for a number of years, as well as some other uh, illustration uh, genres. But um, always with a focus on storytelling. And the people I respected the most were able to get the maximum amount of emotion and power into a painting or a drawing. This is people like N.C. Wyeth or Frank Rosetta, and of course our filmmakers uh, also have those skills as well. But um, after a very short stint in working in animation in Los Angeles, where I was born, became very bored with the industry at that time, which was like the early 80s. Nothing was happening. Disney, DreamWorks, etc. were all far in the future. No one was really sure if even animation was going to survive. And I found that the animation storyboarding itself was rather boring. Uh, but at that time, uh, I did learn about how illustrators are used in the live action industry. And at that point, I began to focus on trying to get work in that industry. And going from being an illustrator and you, you're exposed to that industry, but coming to choose to do a storyboard artist, I mean, obviously your work is you know very very much be easily able to be a comic book art style um so then you know how come you sort of went 
to the storyboard artist went, or you could have gone to become a comic book artist or an illustrator or something like that? Well, initially, and this is starting from my teens, I was very focused on becoming a comic book artist. My great hero at this time was Jack Kirby, who, of course, essentially created the Marvel Universe. Mm. And uh, his particular dynamic style of composition and drawing uh, struck me like no other artist at the time. And so I was modeling my uh, my own ideas about drawing composition after his for many, 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 many years. But around 1970, I decided, you know, I'd, I'd really prefer to go into the, into the illustration industry. I actually met Kirby in 1972 at a comic book convention. And by some miracle, we became fast friends and he became uh, a mentor figure for me until his passing in 94. He also advised me that the comic industry was changing rapidly and perhaps wasn't the best place for someone with my particular aims. And I appreciate his very candid uh, feelings about that at that time, and it certainly uh, helped direct me away to my eventual course, eventual profession. So uh, the comics, however, continue to inform me and indeed many other artists and filmmakers who are working right now because it's a specific kind of storytelling medium that is very adaptable to uh, our cinematic narratives. And I still rely on a lot of those techniques to tell the kind of stories that I do in the film. Wow. Yeah, that would have been uh, pretty exciting to meet a, a legend like that in, you know, in a lot of people's eyes. Did Jack Kirby actually help you to get, get into film industry, to you know, jump from working on little bits and things on up to, onto a large project, or how, how did that happen? Uh, it, not so directly. He was just a general uh, mentor, and you know, he himself was beginning to make in, inroads into the film industry uh, at that time, but um, nothing major had occurred for him. But um, it was actually a writer named Jack Vance who actually helped me make the jump into the film industry. I'd known Jack Vance for many years and, and, and loved his science fiction and fantasy books. He lives, lived in Oakland, California. And about the time I was becoming exhausted with working in the animation industry, uh, I'd heard that George Lucas was beginning to gear up to do what we thought would be the last Star Wars film, The Return of the Jedi. As it turned out, uh, Lucasfilm at that time and ILM were being inundated with portfolios and requests for work from artists from all over the world. Mm. And I also tried to get past the front desk to reach the Lucasfilm creative team, but of course it was impossible. <laughs> uh, and at that time I had no film credit, so I was, I was on pretty shaky ground. But I happened to mention this problem to Jack Vance, and he mentioned that Lucasfilm had approached him about optioning one of his uh, fantasy novels. And so he said, look, I'm due to talk to these people again in a couple of weeks. Why don't you fly up to Oakland? I'll carry on my conversation uh, with their team. Once that's done, I'll hand the phone to you. And, you know, whatever you can do is, is, is what's going to happen. So having no other options, I did that. I flew up to his home. And after he had his conversation with Jack, uh, Joe Johnson, uh, I also had a conversation, probably to... Out of respect for Jack, uh, Johnson agreed to an interview uh, at ILM as a storyboard artist. But when he saw my work, he took it to Lucas, and they both agreed that uh, 
I should be brought on. And the next thing I knew, I found myself working as a storyboard artist on Return of the Jedi. Wow. That's, yeah, it's amazing how just little things that can make the big change and just finding an alternate route. So working on Return of the Jedi, that would have been, was it a little bit of a daunting idea that you're working on such a large project? Because by this stage, you would have known that uh, Star Wars is a huge thing. You know, how, how did how did you approach it? And I guess, did, did you actually work with George Lucas separately? I mean, he wasn't the director, or, or was it more sitting next to the director more and working with him rather? Well, needless to say, I've been a Star Wars fan since the first film came out and standing in line there with a zillion others. Never in my wildest imagination did I consider possible that I would end up working for this team. But by the time I had this interview, I'd already been a freelance illustrator with, you know, seven or eight years under my belt and a lot of experience and a lot of it in fantasy and science fiction images. And, of course, a fair amount of storyboarding by then. And so... uh, I wasn't exactly a raw recruit, but yes, this was the top of the line here, and there was certainly some feeling that uh, there was a lot to learn, and of course that was the case. Well, I can say that that first day of walking into ILM was like entering the Emerald City of Oz. It was pretty awe-inspiring, and the part that I played was under the supervision of visual effects director Joe Johnston a very kind and patient man who helped me work through the processes and get used to the drawing style and compositional styles that they were using at ILM. And of course he got his notes directly from Lucas and he transferred those to me and, uh, any of the work that I did, Lucas would have to approve. And if there were any changes that were required, I would make those. Generally speaking, they were happy that not too many changes ever needed to be made. I was pretty clear on the assignments and was able to turn out, uh, the quality of work that they expected. Mm. So, he, so he, yeah, George Lucas was still obviously quite heavily involved in in the visualizing of the film. Oh yes, uh, he never steps that far back away from projects. He may give the, the direction job to another artist, but in fact, he's always standing behind the scenes. That was just as true on Return of the Jedi as it was for a much later project, Red Tails. Oh yes, yeah. There you go. Oh, it's just interesting. I mean, for me, because I I grew up on, obviously, Star Wars. And I mean, it's funny, though, like I love Star Wars, but it was actually E.T. that really got me really interested in wanting to tell stories or creating those worlds. I mean, I was very young still. Obviously, you've worked in the U.S. for many, many years. How did you end up in Australia? Well, I traveled quite a bit across the world prior to arriving in Australia in 1993 with the production crew of No Escape, also labeled as Escape from Absalom, with director Martin Campbell, with whom I'd previously worked on several films. Um, it was an interesting experience to travel to Australia. I wasn't quite sure what kind of reaction I would receive as you know a black American. But the project was set up on the Gold Coast. So I was working out of Warners, and I quickly found that I really enjoyed uh, both living and working in Australia and interacting with the Australian crews and the environment itself seem oddly familiar after having grown up in California and in a very similar kind of environment. Um, so my wife and I, who was, you know, she was with me at the time, uh, decided mm, we'll have to come back here whenever we get a chance. That chance occurred a few years later when we decided that 
we were not happy with the political state of affairs in the U.S. We were not at all thrilled that the Clintons were in the White House. And the U.S. seemed to be heading on a downward slope which could not be stopped. Whereas in Australia, it appeared there might be a rather brighter future. And so in the end, we decided to just pick up, come here in 1996 and see how things went. As it turned out, they went very well. Mm-hmm. Yes, well, it's a lovely place to live. I've, you know, been an uh, immigrant or... I'd say same thing like I, I couldn't leave this country it's so beautiful to live in and you know and like you said it's uh it's a the it's good stability here as far as the social and you know and, and economy as well I guess um that I I do enjoy and so yeah that's great to hear that you've migrated to Australia and made it your home and um, and uh since since living here uh I guess was it difficult to still get the work, or because you've established so well, you you were able to still get a lot of international jobs? No, it wasn't difficult to find work. The first couple of years were a little difficult. Uh, it was more difficult to go through the process of attaining uh, citizenship, first permanent mm. residency, and then citizenship. Mm. Unfortunately, when I arrived in the country, I was too old to pass the points test. It was just one year past the oh. ability to you know, qualified in every other way and not in any danger of taking another Australian's job, but just a little too old. And so this required uh, companies that hired me to sponsor me for various lengths of time until I could finally get closer and closer to that point where I could get uh, a sponsor for permanent residency. And that finally proved to be Baz Lerman, who sponsored both my permanent residency and also my citizenship. The citizenship in the end came through a program called International Distinguished Talent because it was assessed that I was uh, particularly skilled in my area and was uh, qualified to come in as a citizen under that program. Wow. There you go. That's all these little things. Very happy about that. (laughs) Yeah. 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 Luckily, ours was, you know, it took a while to get our, uh, well, our citizenship. Um, but I guess because we came through the actual proper uh, immigration program because we were refugees in in Austria when we left communism in, from Hungary and um, and yeah we had to make our own way in Austria but once they picked us up luckily the process wasn't too difficult just you had to be here long enough and as you say my parents probably were too old so they had to do the other process of proving you know learning the language um, and just working on whatever jobs are available. Um, so yeah, so it's that's again they, that's part of what I do like in about Australia. That yeah, we can look at a lot of negatives, but I think there's actually a lot of positives to be said about this country. Absolutely, uh, you know we certainly have our problems here, but this is this is a, a golden country in many ways, and. Uh, it's extended a very, very warm hand to me, and I've constantly tried to repay that favor mm-hmm. uh, in a number of ways. And um, being able to work in film in this environment as opposed to Hollywood is is just simply night and day. Hmm. And and you, do you pretty much work from home, or do you still have to go to the production houses? Or obviously, sometimes I assume you'd have to go to the directors. But can you work at home to do your work? Thanks to the generational change, 
it's now far easier to work remotely. I like working in the studio, but most of the work and 80% of it is now done remotely. Nice. Yeah, that would be wonderful. I, I do color grading. That part of it I can do, but yeah, I can't can't film remotely yet. <laughs> nope, you got to be there, mate. Yeah. <laughs> they won't develop a robot to do your job. <laughs> I know. I would yeah, I mean, I yeah. I love it too. I love I love being on set, so that's that's part of it. <laughs> and no, it's all fun. It's all yeah, fun. It is. Talking about working with directors, I wanted to, I guess, you, you've got a huge CV of uh, work. I wanted to also cover another project, uh, Master and Commander. Um, that, to me, it was a really great film from Peter Weir's, um, and obviously you'd worked on that. What was the experience like that with Peter Weir? I mean, he's got a ton of previous work to show that he's really made some amazing films, but this one really was quite a visual film from his previous one. So I was wondering how, how that process was with him. Well, it was a great privilege to be invited to work with Peter Weir, a director I admired for many, many years, and the person who, in fact, had given me my first vision of what life was like in Australia with Picnic at Hanging Rock. Mm. And uh, we met at his house for storyboard meetings and briefings, and he was very, very specific about the shots that he wanted, the uh, sequential feel, uh, the, the overall narrative quality, was uh, very clear in his mind. And yet, like all other directors, he appreciates insights from the artists that he's working with. And so we developed a very productive and pleasurable uh, creative uh, relationship, which, you know, ended up uh, generating a fair number of storyboards. The project eventually moved to the U.S. and other artists were brought on, but it was a great pleasure working with Peter. And was much of your visual concept came come through the film when you finally saw it oh yes you know sometimes you sit there and you just freeze frame shot after shot and you can see where your boards were used oh nice that's always that's always one of the great pleasures of my particular profession yeah it would be and um i'd like to talk about a project like the nanya series the first one was actually interesting as well uh there are often teams of storyboards artists working on projects of this size. Mm. Um, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe was first generated, began gener- being generated in the U.S., and so a rather large number of storyboards were done at that time. When the project shifted to New Zealand and uh, the producers were looking at the storyboard output, uh, they were concerned, and the studio was concerned, that the film was not looking as large as it should, that there wasn't the visual pizzazz that they were hoping for. At that point, uh, I was brought on specifically to try to enhance some of the sequences that had already been done and develop new sequences as well. This was a bit of a challenge because obviously there was a great deal of material to go through. Mm -hmm. In many cases, I just found it easier to toss out the previous storyboards and just create new ones. Uh, when you were working as far as the visual style or concept to, to try and bring in this larger, I suppose, epic scale, is this the discussions you would have had with Michael to try and try and bring that out a bit more? Yes, in both cases. Although it was not true with the initial director on Lion Witch and the Wardrobe, I was simply given the pages and worked from there. Uh, with Michael, there was more interaction, but at the same time, he was also confident in my ability and that of my partner uh, to kind of rework and, and reboot the storyboards that had already been created and certainly create a rather large number of them as well. You have to remember that very often the scripts go through a rewriting phase uh, 
dangerously close to the shooting dates. Mm. And this was true of both of the Narnia films that I worked on, and hence uh, a rather large number of new storyboards had to be created. Michael, as a very mature and intelligent director, was able to give uh, careful and nuanced uh, advice and uh, narrative direction to both of us working as storyboard artists on the film, but he also understood that we were experienced and were able to run with the project and knew the material very well. So it was a great working relationship, and uh, I think he delivered an extraordinary film, really, for the time and the money that he had. And so what was your process to try and bring out these, you know, working with Mark, if your brief was it needs to be a larger scale and bigger, what was it that you've, you've had to go and do um, in, in the work? Is it, is it more trying to create more shots that uh, there was more action, or, or how did you actually go about trying to create that? Well, the first thing I did, of course, was to reread the works that I'd read as a teenager and understand where the writer was headed uh, from the initial phase, and then look to see ways that the script could be strengthened. And this is one of the storyboard artist's jobs, is that you take the text and you try and make it stronger than it actually reads. And you do that by using ordinary compositional norms. You try to uh, design sequences that will hook the audience. Uh, initial images or key images that will just knock them out of their seats. And this is one of the great joys of filmmaking. Because I was very experienced and knowledgeable about fantasy work in general, both literature and, and visual narratives, I was able to bring those skills to the film. Yeah, and the uh, interesting part I find with uh, storyboarding, um, the last feature film I worked on, the director, he, he comes from doing uh, both animation and uh, design and, and stop-motion animation. like, And so he's he was very talented. You know, I got this big fat book of uh, storyboards that he created and obviously way more shots than we could have ever captured, but it, the, at least the visual style was there. So it was really interesting for me because as a cinematographer, you kind of obviously translate that and how I'm going to light some of the looks. Um, from your perspective, like with, with the cinematographers, is there ever a conversation where it kind of there's a back and forward between that or not really? No, not at all. Not at all. The director no. will discuss, it with, discuss the shots with the storyboard artist. He or she will also have discussions with the cinematographer, of course. But once the narrative style has been developed and the storyboard artist has been brought on, that's where the visual signature of the film starts to go. And the cinematographer is also looking at the storyboards and they, and they serve as discussion elements between the director and the cinematographer. And so, yes, we're all connected, but the storyboard artist very rarely will talk directly to the cinematographer. Yeah, it's interesting because like, you look at a film like the latest Mad Max film where they didn't have a script. It was actually just boards like I think 3,000 something rather uh, cells of images, key, key artwork, and then and they just based it off that. So it's interesting that from your perspective, you've obviously got to think uh, camera movement and in a way almost lens size as well because you, you might distort the image to make it look like as if it's shot on a really wide angle or, a, or it's a, a tighter shot with soft background, like that process... Do, do you does the director ever talk to you about that kind of ideas or is it just you you just go with the instinct of your own experience uh, a little bit of both of course 
but I, I, I must underline that it's part of the baseline skill of a competent storyboard artist to understand everything possible about the camera, mm. and that certainly includes all lens sizes. So that when a director says, I want a 200 mil here, or I want a 50 mil here, you have to know what that looks like and be able to draw it effectively. And wow. so uh, along with the compositional skills, the understanding of film continuity, how to design stunts, how to design visual effects, how to create mood in both black and white and color, uh, et cetera, et cetera. These, these are all baseline skills. And so when you come to a director with those skills and they become aware that you have them, the conversation can instantly go into the deeper issues of how do I make this narrative different from any other film that's been made and how do I put my personal stamp on it uh, with the time and resources that I have. Yeah, yeah. And during uh, Chronicles of Narnia, did you have, um, once you saw the final product, but even during the process, did you have some kind of outcome that really surprised you or, you know, whatever? It gave you a, a very, you know, unexpected result. Um, I would say that um, Michael's kind of seamless editing style and his ability to stay on top of every aspect of the filmmaking process, uh, you know, the stunts, the performers, uh, the continuity itself, the art direction, because he's such a mature artist and so talented, uh, it was very pleasant to see that smooth quality finally come out on the, on the final product. Mm. And in, in, in many cases, in many other films where you're working with directors who are not so experienced, there are always some gaps in the quality or some things that probably could have been done better, but uh, the director lacked the experience to see it. That wasn't the case with him. From your perspective, was there any specific scenes that you're really proud of that, that came out in the final two uh, films, I guess, all three, really? Um, uh, yeah. Is there something that you just, I love that scene that turned out? And uh, Look, I'm pretty happy with everything that happened. I wasn't as pleased with uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. They were beginning to feel their way into the narrative mm. direction of those movies, and the director himself was much weaker than uh, Michael Apted. And so, despite having designed a lot of the action scenes and magic scenes, there were moments that I thought failed. Uh, that wasn't so much the case in the final film. Mm. And uh, with uh, going with a style, did you did you have something in mind for it once you read the book and the again you know reread it to re familiarize yourself with the, uh, the all the narrative and everything? Was there something that came to you straight away? I mean, I think this would really be wonderful. Well, in films of this sort, where we we want to have that widescreen appeal, you'll try to design as many you know beauty shots that are that are that are that give you a lot of information about the the world and the characters as possible, since most of it is a created environment, and you have the freedom to do so because the budget allows. Then you'll try to do a lot of these grandiose shots, work them into the storyboard that really sell the feeling of time and place, and also how unique this world is compared to our own. And that's always a great pleasure. Now you're working on a kind of a cinemascope level from the past where uh, there might be a cast of thousands or you're, you're shooting a vista of an entire Roman city. You try to get that kind of quality into the shots and you slow down the faster pace kind of design that we use in straight action movies or action movies that are more contemporary. So it has a more elegant feel to the uh, visual narrative. 
do you actually have any sort of limitations or challenges that were set to you that I guess you had to conform to or try and work around? Not so many limitations for those of us working in storyboard. The director definitely had limitations. Hmm. He was he was working with a smaller budget, and thus storyboards themselves became more important because they were literally going to be shot, and they had to be right, both to serve the purposes of the script and the director's need. So we have always had that in mind uh, in designing these shots. Uh, and, and you know, with each film, there's a different kind of imperative as far as budget and and creative uh, uh, restrictions go. Uh, in this case, we were trying to do everything we could to make Michael's job easier, and by extension, the cinematographers as well. Mm, yeah, that's one thing that uh, definitely is a huge bonus. You're so many steps ahead when you've got your storyboards designed, and even if it's you know maybe over storyboarded, where you're like there's no way we can shoot all that, but it just gives you that many more steps ahead during production when you've got you can only do two or three takes. Per, per setup and I think that's the part that really uh, I think it's it, uh, people underestimate even on low budget productions the value of actually storyboarding I think that's a funny thing that I've picked up working on different projects where I became the storyboard artist as a DP because they've just come to me and they had a, the director had a rough idea how we need to shoot it but no no specifics and then I'm I'm kind of had to storyboard it myself and I you know I use pre-visualization software, so because I'm not the greatest drawer, or it takes me a long time to do good pieces of work. Um, but I think that's, in, from your perspective, is that is that changing? Actually, is that like have you noticed that that it's happening? As the films have become more complicated, and we're competing with, uh, you know, practically a weekly release of dynamic films. Uh, and of course, the budgetary restrictions requiring storyboarding, you know, careful visual design to stay within budget. No, they're more needed than ever. And you also brought up a really good point about the value for low budget films as well. Mm. I work on low budget films, you know, periodically, usually local Australian films, you know, in part because I like supporting the local industry. And I also like working with e either first time or emerging directors. Because they're so keen and so excited, they finally have their, their first budget, and they're just ready to roar. And sometimes some very good things can come out of that process. Mm. But uh, it's universally the case that even if you're doing a five-minute film and you're not entirely sure of your cinematic direction, the storyboards will help lock that down. And also, they inform the rest of the crew. They solve the problem of getting too many questions thrown at the director every single day because they can look at the storyboard and go, ah, there's the answer. This is what they're supposed to look like. Yeah, uh, that's it. And that's not nearly a frustration, but the extra difficulty that's added to productions where I had I didn't have a storyboard and and it was sort of like, you know, extended discussions with the director trying to figure out what they want to shoot or how they want to actually visualize it becomes quite difficult. So, yeah, so I think that's the... That's a simple little thing people can forget, or not forget, but they don't put emphasis on it in the lower budget productions, which I think that's where it's actually the most useful in some ways. Well, I think directors or any director that's working with would have a real treasure to have you on board because you're able to see uh, how to visualize the shots and also able to do it. 
And I wanted to jump on actually digital technology. Do you still use pen and paper or are you now using, you know, like an iPad and draw digitally draw your storyboards? Almost all the storyboards I do are still done uh, by on paper with pencil. And But I often tend to digitally augment them before they go into production. All the concept illustrations that I do and set designs, et cetera, et cetera, are all done digitally. Mm. I just still find it faster and more pleasurable to draw by hand. Yeah, it's interesting. I find the same. Like Even photography, I find it having the physicality of doing photography on film. It's just, I don't know what it is, but it does give you that extra bit of like you're you're more in contact with the piece of work that you create, I guess. So I can see the value of that. And my my wife's a painter, so you know I see it every day. No, I would I would certainly agree. I feel like I have more control. I you know I work with the digital tablets forever and ever, and I just simply don't like drawing on them unless I have to. I don't like the surface. I don't like the feel, mm. and I don't like the fact that I have to interface with a box between myself and the piece of paper. In this case, a digital piece of paper. However, there are many artists who are very adept and have grown up with this process, and they're much more comfortable with it. Um, but, you know, that said, I, I don't know anybody who's still painting traditionally for, you know, for mats and concept illustrations. I don't think anybody's doing that anymore. Yeah. From your perspective, is that, uh, I, I'm assuming that you you can draw a lot faster physically than on a, on a digital, or can you are you pretty... Pretty good on both, but you just prefer... Uh, there's, there's really no speed loss in either medium. It's oh, just good. a matter of equipment. Yeah. You know, we've covered as far as working directors. Is there anything else that you think why it's so important to have boards? Well, you know, fundamentally they provide uh, a roadmap of the film as it might be shot. Uh, in, in many cases, uh, the director, until the point... The film has been greenlit, has been talking about the film only as a, in a text version. You can describe shots, you can and put them down on, on black and white and, and print. You can even pull together, you know, mood packages and things like this to show people what it might look like. But until you start working out the narrative, the film doesn't exist. Mm. And when it does, it empowers the director to be able to lay his or her specific vision down. And that's the great value of the storyboards. Really, the value is, you know, there's a tremendous production value, obviously. These are for the director to be able to consolidate their concepts and come up with new ideas and strengthen the script as it stands. That's what they're, that's what they're there for. Is your favorite piece of tool uh, a pencil or a pen? Or, or is there something... I still use a 2B pencil. 2B pencil. And is that, that's, that's, you always have that handy. I sure do. Oh, excellent. Yeah, I mean, you can always join. And also, like, being a storyboard artist, I wonder, do you, do you like, just if you happen to be outside, and do you actually draw just, um, you know, real nature scapes or anything like that outside? Like, do you, do you kind of inspired by that as well? Or what are, I guess what, what I'm getting at is what are your inspirations to keep challenging yourself to, to improve and learn new things? Well, for many years during my training period and also, you know, my, you know, pre-uni experience and professional experience, drawing from nature and drawing you know, animals and just drawing like crazy. Every artist, serious artist, uh, starts out that way. And that continued uh, probably until the midstream of my film career 
at which point I just began to lack the time to be able to do that. The, the work on film uh, films is, is, is overwhelming and you know, requires many hours a week. And so recreational drawing becomes more difficult to achieve as time goes on. But still, I'll pick up an oil brush, oil painting brush, and uh, you know, or a, or a charcoal pencil now and again, and still draw from nature. Wonderful. And and how do how do you keep inspired? In uh, yeah, I guess to keep refreshed. And I'm obviously new ideas come to you from films. But is there any other outside sources that you kind of not necessarily rely on, but you know, you you that inspires you to keep pushing? Uh, for some reason, I've never run out of uh, uh, inspiration for a new project. Uh, each script uh, provides a new challenge, each director a new opportunity. Uh, the the amount of, of background information in my mind, as with most artists at this point in their careers, is tremendous. I have a resource I can draw on and keeps empowering me uh, project after project. I can't express it any better than that. It's if you have imagination, it doesn't turn off. It just keeps going. And thanks in a large part to the digital tools, we can now realize uh, visual dreams that were just not possible to even conceive of when I began my career. And so now you can really create cinematic magic without any restraints whatsoever. Uh, that's an interesting point about uh, restraints because you know, some artists find that it's the limitations that push them past the the limits. So I guess from you, what what challenges do you have to come up with new ways to capture an image, considering you've got the limitless options now? Mm, you have limitless options, but you're still confined to a two-hour movie, which has to tell uh, a specific narrative with a specific kind of a pace each time. And so once you work from those parameters not so difficult to work the creative uh, edges into that i love genre films um myself you know so i really you know my first feature film is somewhat of a genre it's, it's a biopic western i guess you could say um so you know i i was fortunate to start with something like that do, do you have a sort of a favorite genre or, or maybe even just a favorite film that you that you just love going back to definitely like working in fantasy and science fiction but I also like historical films and, uh, of course, action and adventure. That's all stemming back from the from the comics and the fantasy books that inspired me so much when I was young. And now, of course, it's the movies themselves that continue to inspire. I see movies like the Avengers lines and, and other picks that get close to what I think can be a, can be achieved. But I know there's something more you can do. Yeah, definitely. Talking about the Marvel films, for me, like as as a filmmaker, I guess what I find really interesting in some of the more recent ones is, pe- you know, people have a go at them, and maybe because of fatigue that it's it's all the Marvel films. But interestingly enough, like for example, uh, Winter Soldier in my books, like if you were to strip out strip out the Marvel and just made it as a as a film about two soldiers disagreeing, it's actually a, a very good script, and so. That's what that's the interesting thing that I find with these films is that they've actually have also started developing characters well enough, and even though there's a lot of them, they you know they they seem to be um, actually re- so well made that you just can't you know you can't say that they're bad. 
it's just people want to have a go at it because it, apparently it's not original. But I guess what's your perspective on, on the continuous uh, comic book genre movement? Well, perhaps needless to say, having grown up with the Marvel comics being a primary influence, I'm you know thrilled that finally the the, the wider demographics have finally realized that uh, these films have great potential, can really inspire and thrill audiences, and all of the stories may be limited. There's always content in there that can really grab you, you know, by the heart, and and maintain your interest throughout the the filmmaking uh, process. Mm-hmm. Um, they're certainly exciting to make, no question about that. And look, this just reflects back on the original genius of, of people like Kirby, who were able to structure these narratives in comics far more simple, and yet still hook audiences for generations. Once they're now translated to film, even though a lot of the, the backgrounds and, and some of the action may be similar, there's still a narrative hook in there that just doesn't let you go. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, the fact that the critics will look down on these movies is just par for the course. They have done so for fantasy films and science fiction films since the beginning. It's, these are considered lower-level genres, not on the level of uh, you know comedy or drama, and this is just a prejudice within the industry. Mm-hmm. That said, it's always better if you don't have incompetence tackle projects uh, of this sort, and uh, it's always better to put you know, a sturdy, well-informed filmmaker at the head of a, of a project, say, like Aquaman or, you know, Captain Marvel. So you get all the possibilities out of the narrative. I very much agree with that. And it's, you know, it really, at the end of the day, just because the cover says it's a Marvel film, the stories are there. There's still some great stories in there and, and great character stories. And I think that's where, you know, sometimes you've just got to watch the film for what it is, not what it represents, I guess. You also have the problem with uh, projects like the Marvel movies that these are being made by large studios with very large budgets with the expectation of very large returns. And some of the people who are involved in designing the marketing aspects of the movies have no feel for either the narratives or the talents who are creating them. Their business is to bring more money back for the, uh, for the film corporation. And so, as usual, the process of filmmaking is not a meeting of commerce and art. It's a clash of commerce and art. Mm. And this is one of the main reasons why so few good films get made, because the people who are actually financing them and the people who are actually making the movies are not speaking the same language. That's true, and that's actually very true, in my view, about the Australian industry, that I think there is this lack of this this two meeting together and, and working. Um, it's either extremely, well, it's pretty much only art films that are kind of made in Australia and it seems like they have no sense of commercial sensibility about the, the product. So that's that's actually quite interesting. I mean, I don't know if you fi- find that living in Australia, you've noticed that, but from, you know, from my view, you know, up and comer, I'm really seeing that the, the films that are being supported they tend to go nowhere because they just don't have that combination, business and art, somehow working together. <laughs> Unfortunately, you're very correct about that, and it's one of the reasons why we sort of stalled as a market. I recall it was outlined for me very clearly back in 1998 when I took a commercial project, a low-budget commercial project, to the uh, 
New South Wales Film Commission. And they loved the script, and they liked the idea and realized that it was workable. When they finally sat down and talked about it, their conclusion was that it was too commercial. Yep. <laughs> so I thought, mm, I don't think I'll be talking to these people again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which leaves our local filmmakers in a very serious quandary. Do you work on very low-budget films for the next 10 years, or will you have to leave the country and and find your future elsewhere? And sadly, that's been the case for many of our best talents. Yep. Yeah. And I think... I think I, I do believe that we could easily create commercial films in Australia. Um, you know, in a way, you could look at Peter Jackson in New Zealand has kind of done that for their industry. I think we we have that here. We have a lot of amazing talent, and I think that's where, um, unfortunately, it's about trying to find investors that are willing to go with it and and getting that kind of proper uh, support from the from the you know the film industry peers um, and not keep giving money to people that just make these films that do nothing like they're not great to watch like they might be interesting to watch one time and it's wonderful that we have art films but you know that's uh, that's not going to get the industry very far so it's something that I have not seen change in the 26 years that I've been in Australia and I think it's very sad particularly since we have the example of everyone across the ditch making essentially creating an industry off just a few movies you know mm. you know peter jackson's efforts uh you're absolutely right that we have the talent here when i first got to the country we had enough skilled workers to to, to crew one big movie you know one big hundred million dollar or two hundred million dollar movie and now we have probably five mm. and we certainly have qu quite a few good writers and a lot of very good emerging directors you know not so many uh in the later stages of their career there aren't too many peter weirs here mm. but there are a lot of people who are coming up very refreshed and informed by you know current media output who are capable of turning out a fantastic product they're not getting any money mm. they're yeah. not going to get any money mm. one of the other reasons we have a problem here is that uh in this country, there aren't too many deep pockets compared to, say, the U.S. Mm. And also, most of the very wealthy, the Gina Reinhardt's and the people like that, have zero interest or feeling for film. They do not consider this in any way a legitimate or worthwhile investment. And therefore, the wealthy class will play no part in filmmaking. Yeah, yeah, that's crazy, isn't it? And funny, someone posted on Facebook or somewhere about the fact that during this bushfires we've had, um, you know, the majority of people that, that got off their butts and actually uh, got a lot of donations come through are artists. Yes, there was a lot so, of that. Funny And that. it's very admirable, but it yes, it does sort of <laughs> underline the, the problem there. This cannot be overcome. It appears to be hard, yeah, that's right. you know, hardwired into the culture. And so, therefore, you have to make some very difficult decisions as a filmmaker here, uh, or either or work very hard yes. to find appropriate funding locally, which is almost impossible, and, and will always require international uh, a component, or leave the country. And lastly, uh, I guess, do you have a favorite film that uh, you just go back to? Uh, you know, I'm often asked that, and it's not really <laughs> possible. You, you know, you like certain films for different reasons. 
you know, if I had to make a list of five films that I really loved working on and felt were successful in one way or another, um, you know, to date, that would be certainly Return of the Jedi, um, Batman, uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, mm. uh, Moulin Rouge, mm. yeah. and, oh, maybe Terminator 2. <laughs> it, I think it's not quite as good as many people envision it to be, but there were so many groundbreaking things happening around that film, and mm. uh, it really set up a visual language which is continues to reverberate to this day definitely yeah and, and that, that's true like even you know when he made avatar it probably isn't the greatest you know it's not the story is pretty basic but for what it was you know i got to see it at at imax in 3d and it was oh, the, fantastic and it was you know it was the experience it wasn't yeah. it yeah. and terminator 2 was the same it, it kind of played with a lot of things in that i mean you know, they wrote most of the software to do the 3D stuff, and the even the animation. It still looks to me like a piece of artwork rather than ah, oh, well, we've got animations here, so we'll just chuck in some stuff that we made in in Maya or whatever 3D program. You know, so Terminator 2's got a lot of groundbreaking moments in it, and uh, as you said earlier on, you know, it has iconic imagery. And I think that sticks in your mind forever. If you mention Terminator 2 to someone and they've seen it, they will immediately have certain images in their head that they see from that film because there's actually a lot of iconic images in that. And that's obviously to do with storyboarding as well. Well, if you think about it, the films that I mentioned were largely driven by either the art department or in combination with the director and the art department. Certainly all the Star Wars films with uh, Lucas or I should say George and Marcia Lucas, uh, his ex-wife really drove uh, everything that was important about those movies to the screen, mm -hmm. and uh, they succeeded in cooperation with their amazing art department, uh, notably Ralph McQuarrie, in creating something that you'll never forget. Mm. Ditto and Who Framed Roger Rabbit, someone like Robert, you know, Richard Williams as the master animator on that, that was a tour de force, largely mm. because of him. Um, Terminator for reasons that you've described and again Jim Cameron is an outstanding illustrator in his own right mm. and one of the strongest visual visualizers Hollywood has ever produced and so again driven by the artists yeah and then Moulin Rouge entirely driven by a hyper creative director and an extremely inspired art department probably mm. the most inspired art department I've ever worked with yeah, that, that film was just uh, mind-blowing, like the, the visuals. It was astonishing. That was just, it was just astonishing. Was, yeah, it's just hitting you. And, uh, you know, having worked on it for almost a year, still, when I was sitting there in the theater watching this, and I was going, I was, I was just blown away. Mm. I thought, man, this, this is the movie magic that we're often talking about and can very rarely manifest. Yeah. It's almost like he calmed down too much when he made uh, Australia. Like, that was too calm compared to... <laughs> to Moulin Rouge, but yeah, it's interesting. Um, well, I think uh, you have very few opportunities unless you're a particular kind of artist to both hold together and work cooperatively with a specific creative team. You look at something like the uh, Bond movies where they kept calling the same people back over decades mm. and they have a very specific and well-established look. 
you can't really do that unless you you yourself are a very organized and uh, consistent artist or you're working with people uh, in a team with which you're very familiar. Well, there you go. Well, well that was uh, wonderful to have you on the show. And lastly, I do want to add a little comment that I grew up on a lot of the films that you've storyboarded that are, that are in my list of films that I love to watch over and over again every now and then. Um, you know, I won't go through the list, but obviously I think you probably had indirectly had an impact on me uh, as a cinematographer. So I guess I can finally say thanks to the person that's done that for me. <laughs> that's very kind of you to say so. It's, it's, it's worth remembering that there's a whole army of visualizers out there who create this movie magic, and a lot of them are unsung, mm. and I'm just part of that group. And uh, it's a tremendous thrill to be able to, w- to work with uh, both inspired and talented artists in creating this kind of movie magic, and it's something that will surely sustain you throughout your entire career as well. Wow, thank you. Well, yeah, thank you for coming on board, and uh, I look forward to seeing further works from you. And, uh, and what's, what's next for you, I guess? I'm currently about to start working on a project that's uh, got to do with dragons, fantasy adventure film. Oh, cool. That sounds very exciting. And I'm looking forward to that. Excellent. Last year, toward the end of the year, I was working on a film called Rising Wolf, uh, a really intense thriller by a local Australian director named Antang Furlong. That should come out mm, end of this year, and that's pretty damn interesting. Oh, exciting. I'll have to check it out. Hopefully, it can do the proper run in the cinemas. He's got the backing and the know-how to make this work. It's uh, not a small film. Oh, good. Good to hear. Wonderful. All right, well, thanks for being on board on the podcast, and, uh, yeah, look forward to seeing you down the track. Thank you for having me, and best of luck with your own career. Thanks very much. Well, I hope uh, you got a little bit out of that, talking to David Russell and storyboarding and the essentials of pre-visualizing a film. And next week, I have Storm Ashwood, who is a gaffer, but also a film director who recently has directed two feature films. So it will be an interesting uh, discussion that someone who does two different kind of jobs on film shoots as a, as a gaffer, who's he's established very well in, across Australia, and uh, also film directing. So look out for it next week. Talk to you then. Mm-hmm.